Welcome to Briefly Legal, your podcast briefing on legal news, developments, and legislation on the go. Brought to you by the attorneys of Crow and Dunleavy. The following should not be understood as or considered a substitute for legal advice. Visit CrowDunleavy.com for more information. Welcome back, everyone. This is your host, Adam Childers, with the podcast known as Briefly Legal. I'm coming to you once again from the Crow's Nest in downtown Oklahoma City. You might wonder why my throat and voice sounds just a bit scratchy. Well, that's because, like so many other fans of the Crimson and Cream, I was cheering just a bit too loudly and blew out a few of my vocal cords, but uh, I am still intact enough to get together to for what I think is going to be one of our most exciting and informative podcasts of the year. This is podcast number 22 of Briefly Legal, and today we're going to be meeting with Crow and Dunleavy legend, really Oklahoma legend, and that is Dean Andy Coates. Dean Coates, say hello to everybody. Well, good morning to you all, and uh, thank you for the kind phrases, and uh, I look forward to being back at Crow. I've spent most of my life over here off and on, so it's uh, great to be back with you. Well, it is excellent to see you and have you here today, Uh, and we're going to be talking about something that uh, I guess is apropos, uh, given the uh, state of my vocal cords, and that's uh, football, college football, Uh, and the reason that we're going to be talking to Dean Coates about that is that one of the many jewels in the uh, legal career that he has had is the case that he helped handle and uh, argued on behalf of the University of Oklahoma Board of Regents involving the NCAA back in uh, 1983 before the United States Supreme Court. It's a case that along with the University of Georgia, OU, changed the landscape of televised rights for college football, and Dean Coates was at the epicenter of that case. And so we're going to talk about that case today and and get some background and really some some great stories, some inside baseball or I suppose inside football, as the case may be, stories about that entire case. Now, before we jump into it, I, I do want to give just a little bit of background uh, for Dean Coates. Uh, He completed his undergraduate studies at the University of Oklahoma, and he served in the United States Navy before attending and graduating OU College of Law in 1963. Shortly after he finished his legal career at OU College of Law, he started with us here at Crow and Dunleavy, and he was named Outstanding Lawyer in Oklahoma in 1977. His pursuit of uh, the law does not define him, though. He was also elected mayor of Oklahoma City from 1983 to 1987, and he served as the dean of my alma mater, the University of Oklahoma College of Law, from 1996 to 2010. In fact, if we had a nice little talk about the fact that uh, I was there from 1997 through 2000, so um, I'm literally with my dean today, which uh, is a, a special moment for me. Dean Coates is still a dean emeritus with the School of Law and is still actively teaching uh, law students in several different classes even today. Dean Coates was inducted into the Oklahoma Hall of Fame in 2005, and he continues his work with Crow and Dunleavy as a director of the firm. But now what I want to talk about is this case that involved uh, the University of Oklahoma and Georgia and the NCAA and really 
changed the way that we view and digest college football even to today. So that's the case of NCAA versus Board of Regents and the University of Oklahoma. So Dean Coates, let's start with just a little bit of background to figure out how we got here. When is it even that uh, college football games started being televised? Well, it does have some history. The problem came along because some universities got support from the state funds to support their athletic programs, and some did not. And OU and Georgia didn't. And so when the requirement came along that the universities had to spend as much money roughly on women's sports as they did on men's sports, uh, it became critical because the truth was that only football uh, football drove the wagon. Only football really made any money for the sports, and they wanted. They knew that television, or thought that television, would uh, uh, would bring about uh, some additional help for them, so they could uh, uh, support all of their sports programs in, in a better way. The uh, schools were having to cut out programs. It was a tight fit for finances uh, for uh, sporting institutions. And the problem is that, of course, that nobody really wanted to take on the NCAA. That's like taken on the Internal Revenue Service, uh, sooner or <laughs> later they'll get you. And uh, fortunately, we had the president of Georgia, a guy named Fred Davidson, and uh, Bill Bonowski at OU had the courage to step up and say, no, this is wrong, and we need to be able to sell our television programs, uh, football television, uh, to people that want to see it and, and buy it. And, uh, and so they were able to take on the... NCAA through an organization called the College Football Association, which was an organization that had been formed two or three years earlier uh, on behalf of all the big football playing schools, uh, the, the academies, Notre Dame, all the independents, Pittsburgh, uh, that was an independent, and, uh, and uh, the other uh, conferences except the Pac-10 and the Big Ten who, that wouldn't budge from NCAA. So uh, they entered into a competing contract, and, and uh, that brought about the uh, start of the battle. Yeah, that kind of sets the stage. In fact, I was looking to, at the numbers. Uh, apparently, the, there had been a contract set in place between the NCAA and ABC and CBS, and the plan was between 1982 and 1985. Essentially, uh, over those four years, and th- this is going to be for $131 million, which sounds like a lot back then, but it just pales in comparison to what the numbers are today. But the idea was that those two, ABC and CBS, were going to be able to put on football games that would showcase 82 members, but none of those schools could be on more than six times and not more than four times nationally. And importantly, they were all paid the same amount of money, regardless of you know how valuable that game might be. So I talk about that as it related to you know setting up the problem that was attacked by OU and Georgia. Well, the fact that the CFA had formed and was uncomfortable is the reason that uh, the NCAA went to a two-game weekend uh, system. Before that time, in the previous contracts with ABC, there had been only one game, Game of the Week. And there were a lot of schools across the country that had never been on television. uh, as I look out there, I think for OU, that was the good old days because we could <laughs> recruit guys and say, you know, come with us and you can be on television. If you go to some of these other schools, well, you can't. So it was a great advantage, though. You was one we were going to give up uh, in later times. But uh, they had always done that. They let the uh, they contract with uh, one of the, and nearly always ABC, 
one of the great networks, and then that network got to pick the games they wanted, and they would send a telegram to the school saying, uh, your game with Nebraska, your game with Oklahoma on December 12th has been selected for television. Uh, you can be, you'll be receiving uh, $300,000 or whatever it turned out to be, and uh, you need to split it with the uh, other team. And uh, that was the way it was done. And nobody else could be on television. Nobody else could contract their television, football television rights away. And it had a kind of a long history to get there, but that's uh, NCAA just taking it over and, uh, and ruled on who could be on television and when they could be on television by leaving it to the choice uh, of the uh, ABCs of the world. And that raises the issue that they essentially were treating it like a monopoly, right? There's, there's uh, essentially a, a fixing of prices. There's a, a reduction of output. So I take it that that's kind of the battleground in terms of the, you know, the legal linchpin of the case. But of course, prior to this argument being made on, on behalf of the university, it had always been the understanding that uh, the NCAA was uh, essentially exempt from the Sherman Act. Is that right? Well, they'd say most uh, organizations that are, quote, nonprofit organizations were not considered to be commercial, and consequently, they didn't come under the act. But there were some earlier cases that said, no, if you uh, are a nonprofit kind of organization, but you venture into the commercial world, then you have to play by the same rules everybody else does. And that's where we got a leg up and were able to go forward with our case. I see. Okay, well, then let's let's jump into it. Then how, how does it come to pass that, that, that you get involved and— are, you know, because obviously this went up to the district court, through the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals, and then to the U.S. Supreme Court. So let's, let's start at the beginning. How did you get involved at the district court level? Well, uh, what happened to me was I came to the office one day and, and uh, I got a telephone call from D. Replogle, and D. was a uh, partner at the McAfee and Taft firm, but he was also a regent. So his firm was disqualified, a conflict of interest. And so he called me and said, would you be interested in representing the University of Oklahoma. President Benowski asked me who I would recommend, and I told him I'd recommend you. So he said, I'd be glad if Clyde Muchmore could work with you on it, because Clyde had a reputation of being an extraordinarily uh, bright and careful lawyer. And uh, so uh, I said, well, that sounds like it'd be interesting. And so we took it on, and we were right under the gun, because a few days later, we had a, a hearing to prepare for. And so we got busy. But it came, uh, frankly, from a, uh, a firm that... Uh, at the time, uh, we sent a lot of business back and forth because uh, they had situations with conflicts, and we had situations with conflicts, and we had some confidence in them, and they obviously had some confidence in us. And, and so from that referral began the, the journey to the United States Supreme Court. But I guess, as you said, you're under the gun at the beginning. It's an injunction hearing. Am I right? Yes. What happened is we inherited the contract the CFA made with NBC, the the packet that you talked about was CBS and ABC. And uh, in the interim, the CFA schools had entered into a contract with NBC uh, that would not compete with the two games that the uh, NCA team put on. They would put on their own programs and the schools could be selected. And in their view, it wasn't going to be totally uniform so that they could pick out the games they wanted to have played. And uh, try not to compete with, uh, with NCAA. And uh, as soon as that happened, NCAA came out and said, anybody that, that honors the uh, CFA-NBC contract uh, is subject to sanctions, and they will be expedited sanctions. We'll do them right away. And 
we will not only sanction the football programs, but we'll sanction any other programs that they, that they put on through the NCAA, which, of course, scared the uh, basketball schools to death because Absolutely. their basketball programs couldn't stand to be uh, ex- sanctioned as NCAA was going to do the rest of it. So an action was, was started um, against the NCAA to enjoin the NCAA from uh, sanctioning the uh, uh, participants in, in the uh, CFA-NBC contract. It was that battle. It was set in front of Judge Luther Eubanks within a few days after we got employed. So we got busy and, and got ready for it and had the hearing. And so uh, what was the outcome on that hearing? Well, we spent three days, and we had uh, uh, some uh, Fred Davidson from OU and Ben—I mean, Georgia and Fred and uh, Benowski from OU testified. Wade Walker testified for us. Uh, uh, it was—he uh, was our athletic director at the time, and and NCA called in some folks. So it was a pretty robust hearing. They hired some lawyers from big law firms from Oklahoma City. Jimmy Fellers, who was past president of the American Bar Association, was on the side of the NCAA, and we had a full scale hearing and the judge came out with an order but it was not as i mean it enjoined ncaa but there was a it was a little bit uncertain in the way it was phrased and then they were concerned there'd be an appeal so the schools just couldn't afford to take the chances and they opted out of the the nbc contract and it went away so then let's pick up the thread from there obviously the story doesn't end at that point how how do things get rolling again after that well, of course, what happened is we had a we were just left with a lawsuit because we had the, the preliminary injunction was just the early part of our lawsuit, and the main thrust of the action that we had was to um, really strike down the uh, NCAA's uh, college football television program uh, as being a violation uh, of the antitrust laws, and so we began to uh, uh, do discovery and uh, prepare ourselves for a trial. All of our judges in Oklahoma disqualified because they were all Oklahoma fans. And Tenth Circuit assigned in Judge Juan Bersiaga from New Mexico to uh, try the case. And uh, I must say, his his district court order striking down the NCAA programs was a masterpiece. In fact, it carried us through. If you read the Supreme Court opinion, you can see that they quote Judge Bersiaga in nearly every paragraph about how the district court was the one that really made the findings that just killed the NCAA's chances of, of going forward. Uh, we still had problems, obviously, and there were appeals coming. But uh, we tried the case for four or five days. Uh, NCAA brought in the guy who uh, was in charge of high school athletics. Oh, my goodness, we'll have, uh, if you left wide open, we'll have uh, college football television on high school football game nights. Nobody will come to our games. The reason that they had started in the first place with the NCAA television program was the concern that televising college football games would cut down on live attendance. And uh, there was some correlation to that in the early days, as I think because the veterans were leaving and didn't come back so that there was not probably, there was probably a decline in, in live attendance, but it came back. Uh, so we were able to... Uh, uh, cross-examined. I cross-examined Walter Byers, and uh, Walter Byers was had created the NCAA. He started out with uh, two rooms in a hotel in Chicago, and it started because of, of the injury to some players, uh, um, and 
the NCA grew out to put in, in rules and requirements and safety measures and, and did a good job. I mean, NCA was really, uh, I think, uh, uh, totally important in developing college athletics at every level because it really did set the playing field and keep the people under some control and, and uh, limit the kinds of activities that could go on. So I, uh, we weren't anyway uh, feeling that NCA had an important role in in in, our, in the lives of college sure. athletics is very important. Walter Byers was, well, uh, getting a short answer out of Walter Byers on cross-examination was like trying to take a sip of water from a fire hydrant. <laughs> he just talked and talked and talked. And finally, at one point in the cross-examination, uh, I'd ask him a question and, and pursued it some. And finally, Judge Bursiaga said, Mr. Coach, he said, it's not necessary for you to ask that question again. It's obvious that Mr. Byers isn't going to answer it, and I think I know the answer. So that was encouraging. <laughs> Bersiaga ran a tough trial. He didn't he didn't fool around. He wanted it to move forward, and he wanted it to uh, get completed in a reasonable time, which we did. But he, he was a graduate of West Point, and he ran his courtroom sort of like a West Point guy would run it. And uh, uh, of course, his findings were extraordinary. Well, nothing like a strong judge to control the courtroom and even better to set the stage with a strong opinion that, uh, as you said, kind of propelled things at the Tenth Circuit level. Let me ask, before we even get to that stage, where were the other member institutions of the NCAA in terms of, you know, was there fear of blowback from those uh, those colleges or, or were they kind of rooting for you guys from the sidelines? Well, it was, it was obviously a little of both. Uh, they were, as I say, concerned about the suing the NCAA. They didn't want to be. They were one of the groups. They were members of the NCAA, and they hated to sue a group that they were a member of. And uh, uh, like uh, it was said at the time, it's a little like fighting the IRS. You know, if you if you take after them, they'll get you some somewhere or the other. And so that was the feeling. And uh, uh, one of the things that the NCAA promised, the lawyers promised, Judge. Eubanks at the trial was said, give us a chance to deal with this and we'll set a special convention for the purposes of uh, dealing with this issue. And so they did. They created a convention in St. Louis and uh, Clyde Muchmore, who was uh, with me all the way through and uh, was, was, you know, a remarkable lawyer and great, great friend. And he and I went to that convention and we were not well received there. I've said earlier that we were treated like illegitimate children at a family reunion. <laughs> and, uh, Went on. It was really interesting. Uh, Joe Paterna hated us and you know couldn't believe that we were going to be there and consider it. Or not. It was it was really quite awkward. But uh, it wasn't a uniform feeling because uh, several athletic directors from various universities would come by and say, "Gosh, we hope you win this case." And DeLos Dodds, who was the athletic director at Texas, and Bob Devaney, who we all knew as an athletic director at Nebraska, both came by, kind of whispered in our ear, we hope you win this case. We can't, don't connect us with us and use our names. Don't let us know we're helpful, but we'll send you some money. So uh, they did get in behind us, and all the big schools wanted it to happen. Uh, they just weren't willing to step up to the plate like OU and Georgia were to to uh, take them on. Absolutely. Well, so then the next step, of course, is the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. I take it that Clyde and, and others from the, the firm participated in that process with you? Yes, uh, we did. We got ready for the arguments, and I took the factual side, and Clyde took the antitrust side. And we, we something seldom ever do in a circuit court, but I just thought it worked out better for us to, to split our arguments, and we did that. And uh, the NCAA had hired Frank Easterbrook, who later became a, a Court of Appeals judge on the Seventh Circuit. He's a very bright and capable guy. He argued for NCAA both there and in the Supreme Court. 
And uh, I felt, felt pretty good after the argument, uh, but we only won two to one. And uh, Logan and Seymour were for us, and Judge Barrick was against us. So and he wrote a lengthy opinion being against us. So we won, and we sighed a big sigh of relief. It looked like it was over. The, the, the injunction was in place. They couldn't uh, sanction our schools, and so we were ready to go forward and do another one. And then, of course, we got word that the Supreme Court of the United States had accepted certiorari, and we were going to have to go to the court. Well, when you've won at two levels and the Supreme Court takes jurisdiction, it's an uneasy feeling. So you feel like the, <laughs> they thought the decision was right, they'd leave it alone. And so they, they jumped in and, and granted cert, and uh, we went. Now, I know, and, and all of you would know, that uh, they only have to have four votes to uh, to get certiorari, and uh, but I must say, if they got four that are worried about the case, well, we're worried about it even so. So we started uh, doing our heavy preparations for the Supreme Court of the United States. And I must say here too, Kent Myers is uh, you know extraordinary antitrust lawyer, teaches antitrust at OU, and he was such a great help to me in preparing for the argument in the Supreme Court that it was really uh, Clyde and Kent and, and Harvey Ellis that were all. Crow partners here that uh, really were great assistance in getting me ready to make the argument. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the preparation. I mean, well, first off, this was your first Supreme Court argument. So I, I would think that there might have been some concern that they might have gone out and got a hired gun instead that had, had argued quite a bit. But uh, they, they stood by you, the, the universities uh, did for that for that argument, which had to feel terrific, I'm sure. Well, it did, and 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 you're right. Uh, once we got there, Chuck Ninus, who was our really our main client uh, through this, he was the executive director of the Big Eight, and then had also been the uh, executive director of the College Football Association. Kind of helped it form. Was really the guy that was calling the shots, and and uh, I've always been thankful to him that there are several uh, of the college presidents around the country that were interested in the case, called him, and wanted him to hire some Washington lawyers who spend a lot of their time in front of the Supreme Court handle the case, but uh, thank goodness he said no. He said, Andy's carried us this far. I want to stay with him. And he did. And so it was uh, it was that and the preparations uh, getting ready for it were extraordinary uh, uh, based on the recommendation of Ed Walsh, who had tried a couple of cases in the Supreme Court and was one of our partners here at the time. Uh, I went to Washington and got a hotel room and took everything, all the cases we could find that were anywhere like it. And I read brief cases and studied them. And then Clyde and, and uh, Harvey Ellis came up and cross-examined me and moot-courted me for a couple of days before we were ready to go do the argument. Well, then let's talk about that argument. That's where, um, obviously, the, the, the goosebumps arrive for practitioners when we think about being in those howled halls. I was looking at the uh, the lineup of the, the nine justices at the time. Warren Berger was the, the chief justice at the time. But the, it, this really is a, a who's who of some of, of the best justices on the U.S. Supreme Court. You had um, uh, William Brennan, Byron White, Thurgood Marshall, Harry Blackman, uh, Lewis Powell, William Rehnquist, who would become the chief justice just a few years later, uh, John Paul Stevens, and uh, of course, Sandra Day O'Connor. So a power-packed lineup. You, I, I won't uh, bury the headline. You win on a 7-2 count with uh, Justice Rehnquist as well as Justice White dissenting. John Paul Stevens wrote the uh, majority opinion. But tell me about the, the argument itself. Uh, was it one of those where you're, you're peppered with questions? Yes, we had a live court, and of course, that's uh, 
a great thing. I, I tell my students that one of the great experiences of your life is to do oral arguments when you have a live court, when they've read the, the briefs and are up top of the issues. And it's your real chance in the world to change their or affect their opinions. And I got a lot of questions. One of them they were concerned about was the, uh, the situation we had with our conferences, because at that time, I, everybody paid all of their television money into the uh, conference and then divided it up later. Same thing with bowl fees. We all did that. And, and uh, they were concerned that that was, you know, antitrust by itself. In fact, one of them says, well, if you win this case, they may look at that, uh, your conference situations. And, and we did that. And of course, I, you know, my great friend and, and mentor, Bill Paul, had been involved in the argument, the Silkwood case uh, versus Kerr McGee in the Supreme Court. And so he gave me some advice as well. And he, he told me not to try to be amusing or funny up there. And I, <laughs> about the second question I got, somebody said, well, you just bring this case because you want to be, oh, you to be on television every Saturday. And I said, well, I'd, I'd hope so. But uh, unless we're better than we were last year, nobody's going to want us on television. <laughs> We'd had a bad year the year before. Yes, that's right. And they all laughed, which was which is kind of broke the, the attention a little bit. And it, it and it, it worked well. But there was lots of questions and a lot of concern. Uh, Rehnquist uh, just said, is this a are they a profit making organization? The answer is, of course, they were intended to. Now, they made a hell of a lot of profits. They went from a, a two room uh, hotel room in, in Chicago to three or four office buildings in, in Shawnee Mission, Kansas. So they'd made a lot of money over the years, but they didn't, they, they weren't really intending to make profits. Uh, but once, and the answer to that was, once they began to thrust themselves into the commerce and they had to play the real same rules as everybody else. So I think that's eventually what, what carried the day. Absolutely. I, it was interesting to see that Judge White dissented. Um, you know, Judge White is known as uh, quite quite the athlete and really just quite the, the scholar and man himself. Um, it was interesting, though, given his uh, background with college football, that he came out on the other side, one of the only two dissenters. What were your thoughts on that? Well, he was really a, a true believer in amateurism. He says that he'd hate a lot what's happened with the uh, various ways in which college athletes are making lots of money these days uh, because he thought that amateurism was a very important part of the educational process and that, after all, college athletics are supposed to be part of the educational process. That's the only reason that they're there. We're not in the business of, of selling a big athletic programs. We're supposed to be in the business of, of educating. And so... He felt strongly about that. He was the most, one of the most amazing people that I've ever known. He was, as I mentioned earlier, he played uh, running back for the Pittsburgh Steelers and Rookie of the Year at the same time he was going to Yale Law School, which would be a pretty good division of your activities. But he, he was very concerned that increasing funds that would happen because of television would change the relationship of, of the colleges to their students and, and decrease amateurism. And, of course, that's what's happened. He uh, was... I think sincerely uh, concerned about that, and he thought that there ought to be a, as you said, starting off, that there ought to be a different rule for uh, a group that's primary function is to set up rulings for amateur athletics, and that they shouldn't be treated like the other uh, kinds of commercial ventures, and that uh, uh, he was, uh, I think, really affected by the fact that it was going to change the world in terms of college athletics, and and I think he could see maybe even a farther ahead than we could uh, what might happen. So it's interesting you mentioned that, though, too. There, there's one of the 
the legacies that was, you know, out there, the, the dangers being pointed to by those who were supporting the NCAA side of things was that attendance would be driven down, that that ultimately, you know, there, there would be too much television and it would dilute the product. Um, you know, interested in your thoughts on that after, you know, a wonderful weekend of college football where just about every school in the nation that should be showcased and maybe a few that shouldn't uh, got some airtime this weekend. What, what are your thoughts about the, the legacy of it as, as it relates to the TV side of things? Well, it's interesting because it really never made any sense. As I mentioned to you earlier, the, the television did go down after the veterans that came back from World War II graduated and went away. They didn't have enough money to come back to some of the games in their early lives. And so the uh, attendance, which had swelled right after World War II when the veterans came back, went down. And at the same time, the University of Pennsylvania was uh, televising their home games. And uh, they were going to go ahead and do so, even though the NCAA said, wait a minute, television may be uh, causing us to lose live uh, attendance at the games. Uh, so we think we need to stop it. And they said, well, we're not going to. And they said, well, if that's the case. We're going to sanction you and uh, the other four schools that were supposed to come at the University of Pennsylvania in 1947, I think it was, or 48, said they couldn't come. And so the Pennsylvania rethought their situation and decided they'd follow the NCAA's rules on it. And that's what happened over the years because they, they really argued that college football television caused a decline in uh, the athletic attendance, the live attendance of uh, persons at football games. Now, the, the big one of the big arguments that I used in cross-examination of Walter Byers was, wait a minute, look at basketball. Basketball has never been uh, any limitation on how much they can be televised. They're televised all the time, and live attendance has grown every year. In fact, people seeing it on television for a little while decide they want to go to the games. And wouldn't the same thing happen with uh, uh, football? Maybe that, in fact, uh, and I think that's what we've seen is that uh, television actually encourages and improves the amount of live attendance. We've got so much live attendance we can't take anymore, and most of the big schools are that way. So uh, it just was a fallacy that didn't come forward to really mount or mount anything. And uh, while it was something that they hid behind for years, uh, I think circumstances have certainly proved that it was wrong. Yeah, I, I think your argument uh, stands the, the the test of time, and and obviously you got to be a part of you know a watershed moment in terms of the NCAA and and college football in general. It it had to be one of the highlights of your career. Now I say that you've had a storied career, but where 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 do you place that in in terms of your memories of uh, legal victories? Well, certainly it's, it's it's very high up on the list. I mean, to be able to be uh, represented my university and, and the University of Georgia, of whom I became very fond uh, uh, in representing them and, and to take on a national organization as well established as the NCAA and to uh, be able to uh, carry them through the courts and, and prevail at the end is you know, obviously one of the great things that I was ever involved in, was ever able to achieve. And so uh, I I have fond memories of the of all the months that we worked and the, and the discovery we did, the discovery took all the depositions of the guys that headed up all the conferences around the country and traveled a lot, spent a lot of time getting ready for the cases. And, and I had to, I had not been an antitrust lawyer before I started with one. And somebody said about Andy, he said, well, he thinks antitrust is some kind of a will probate. And I said, <laughs> no, it's not that bad, but I did have a lot to learn. And, and, uh, and yet at the time was able to come out the top. We had hired, uh, 
Judge Griswold, who has uh, had been Solicitor General of the United States, to help me with my argument. He was uh, he was a crusty old fellow. He'd been Chief Justice Supreme Court of Massachusetts, and and was a really extraordinary fellow. And maybe the greatest compliment I ever got was after he sat with us at, at the uh, argument, and uh, he he preceded me out of the thing after out of the courtroom after the argument, and he got about halfway down, and he stopped and puzzled for a minute and turned back to me, and he said. You know, that wasn't too bad. And he didn't say it was good, but he said it wasn't too bad. It was a great compliment. A great compliment and get, indeed a, a truly remarkable career that you have had, uh, Dean Coates. I'm, I'm so excited that we got a chance to talk about this victory. And, and before we close, I wanted to give you a chance to tell one of uh, my favorite uh, stories. And that's because it has to do with uh, the law school that you were dean of and that, that I attended and loved so much. Um, so it, it's actually named after you. Uh, which uh, that happens sometimes, but rarely for a, a sitting dean, which was the, the the case for you. And so, but I'm told that uh, former uh, OU president David Boren had, got a few chuckles when uh, uh, discussing uh, the naming of uh, of the school. Tell us about that. Well, it was, it was a big banquet. Sandra Day O'Connor was there because it was the day that we opened the new facilities and all the things that had been built. And so. Uh, we had the governor, and we had uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, and we had a great banquet afterwards over at the uh, Sam Noble Museum. And uh, the regents were all there, and they got up. Sandra got up to go back, and the students were in another part of it. And she got back both students, and the regents got up, and I thought they were going with her. Actually, what they did was go out and meet, have a formal meeting, and announce the fact that they were going to name the building after me. And, uh, and of course, I didn't know any this was going on. Uh, and so we're back, and David gets up, and he starts reading. I said, we've got just a naming thing. He starts reading a biography. He says, hell, I, I sent there listening. He said, that sounds familiar. Some of that sounds familiar. <laughs> and then he announces, he says, uh, uh, that we are going to name this building uh, after Andrew M. Coates. And I was stunned. And he turned to me and he said, would you like to say anything? And I said, David, I can't. And so he turned back and he said, this is an historic occasion for two reasons. First of all, we've never named a building after a sitting dean. And secondly, it's the first time in history that Andy Coates has been speechless. <laughs> that is, that's a gem. And that's probably true because anyone who's ever been uh, graced with your presence knows that you've always got a good story something that'll make you laugh and something that you'll learn from. And uh, that's why I am so proud to have called you my dean at the law school and my colleague here at the firm. So Dean Coates, it has really been a pleasure today to hear from you as a guest and hear about uh, your time before the United States Supreme Court. Thank you so much for sharing those experiences and that insight on our show today. It's an honor to learn more from you on this fascinating topic. And and even on a day when my, when my, uh, my voice uh, gives way. I should also point out, it's interesting that we've got uh, OU and Georgia as the centerpieces of our story today. They, uh, over the weekend, they are now the number one, Georgia and number four teams in the land. So uh, as important as all this was back in the 1980s, both those institutions <laughs> remain critically important to uh, college sports today. So 
uh, that caps off what I already know is one of my favorite shows that we have put together. I just want to say thank you, Dean Coates, for joining us. Thank you for being one of the legends of Oklahoma City, uh, this state, and uh, this firm of Crow and Dunleavy. That's a wrap for now. I look forward to joining everyone next time here on Briefly Legal.